Father, and thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this opening to the New Testament. Would you please give me words to say that, uh, reflect uh, the meaning of your words, and would you give us uh, ears and eyes and hearts that are open to it, that we may see wonderful things in your words and may love the Lord Jesus more dearly. Uh, for his name's sake. Amen. And you'll find one of my more extensive outlines on the back of the service sheet, if that's remotely helpful to you. I wonder, how are you with waiting? I don't mean the seemingly interminable wait for the doctor at the GP service, uh, who is always running late. I don't know if you have the same GP that I do. I mean the sort of wait that goes on for days or weeks. A wait for something really great that never seems to happen. Some of you will know that experience with, uh, with a baby. Uh, you're past delivery date and it's still waiting and waiting and you're never quite sure is it ever going to come. It might be a gift. A family overseas sends you a, a Christmas present and it takes weeks. And you think, has it been lost in the post? Is it ever going to come? It'll be great when it gets here, but I'm not sure it'll ever arrive. Perhaps you feel that a little bit with Christmas. Uh, Christmas seems to start earlier every year, doesn't it? Uh, the, the trees go up in the shops. The Christmas music starts back in October. You've sort of got your Christmas shopping done by the end of November. The Advent calendars come out at the beginning of December. And you're already bored of Christmas. And you haven't even got to mince pies and carol services yet. And you get to the day itself and it sort of loses its sheen because Christmas has been going on for so long. You might get what, what I've called waiting fatigue. You're just kind of tired of waiting and waiting for those things to happen. Well, our passage opens the New Testament at this evening, and the people of God have been waiting. I wonder how you would feel if you had to wait 1,800 years for your first Christmas. Well, that is what this passage is capturing. At verse 2, Abraham. Verse 16, Jesus, who is called Christ, 1,800 years between those two names, 1,800 years of waiting. I have no doubt that the Jews were uh, tired of waiting. Uh, many people have been put forward as the answer to Abraham's, the promise to Abraham and the promise of a king to David. Many people who had uh, been put forward as a possible Messiah, uh, people who had uh, shone brightly for a while and then disappeared equally quickly. And the Jews were tired of waiting. And yet Matthew opens his gospel with these words. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's a bold move. He's basically saying, he's here. It's happened, finally. All that waiting is over. Well, the Jews are going to need some persuading not least because their expectation of the Christ was a mighty warrior king who would ride into, into Jerusalem on a shiny white horse, vanquish the Romans and establish a, an eternal rule of the throne of David in Jerusalem. And yet as Matthew writes this book, Jesus is gone, the Romans are still here, how on earth can Jesus be the Christ? That's the question for this book in general. And it's focused down for us in this particular chapter with the question of Jesus' birth and Jesus' origins. 
can Jesus possibly be qualified to be the Christ? And so we come to our first point, an unexpected baby. Unexpected, I guess, for Mary. She certainly wasn't expecting it. But unexpected for the people of God as well. I wonder, who has the right to rule? We know who the next king of England is going to be. It'll be Charles. And then it'll be William. And it was going to be Harry, but now he's down to number four because George is in place. And Harry will be bumped down to five fairly soon when the next baby comes along. It seems to me that you have to have a fairly good grasp of family trees if you want to know where you stand in line for the throne. Who's 13th? Who's 20th? I've no idea. But the people who need to know will have their family tree mapped out, and so it is here. Family trees are important for knowing who is in line to the throne. And it's particularly important for for Jesus. Nobody doubts that Charles is the first in line to the throne. But how can Jesus make a claim? Born of a nomarch, a carpenter, in a backwater town, in a stable, an insignificant man with an insignificant background, illegitimate, says verse 16, born to Joseph, but not of Joseph, How could he possibly be the sort of person who would be king? The eyes of God's people would be on Jerusalem, after all. Jesus says so himself, it's the city of the great king, chapter 5, verse 35. And no one's got their eyes on the provinces. When Catherine gives birth to the fourth in line to the throne next year, where will she do it? I take it she won't do it in someone's shed in their back garden in Swindon which is basically what happens to Jesus. It'll be in some private hospital in West London with the royal physician attending and the photographers from Hello and OK standing outside waiting to get a snap. Won't it? That's how kings are born. How can this Jesus possibly be the king? And why should we care? If the Jews of Jesus' own day couldn't recognise him as their king, what possible relevance has Jesus got for us today? 2,000 years and 2,000 miles removed. There may not be a single one of us who has any Jewish background at all in this room. Why should we care? We should care because the Jews had got something wrong. They got their expectations wrong. And Jesus is not just the king of Israel. Jesus came to be the king of the universe. He came to be king not just for a time but for eternity and therefore he is the king of every place and every when and therefore our king. Jesus came in an unexpected fashion but far from uh, dismissing him as the king he becomes uh, very definitely the person who is appointed by God to be the king of every place. So our main point this evening, the long-expected king. And Matthew wants to persuade us that Jesus is the only one with the right credentials to be the king. First thing he says is Jesus is the son of Abraham. We, probably none of us here, know our family tree back more than three or four generations, I guess, 
We tend to think people are slightly weird if they know their family tree back hundreds of years. I have a few friends like that. They tend to be quite posh. It tends to be quite important for them to know uh, what, what their family tree goes back to. Uh, but Matthew here traces Jesus' family tree back 1,800 years to Abraham. Because if Jesus is to be the king of the Jews, he must first of all be a Jew. A pure-blood Jew. A descendant of Abraham and therefore someone who has the right to inherit God's promises to his people. And Jesus is a son of Abraham. But very quickly, Matthew's focus comes down to David. Because David is concerned, Matthew is concerned throughout his book about Jesus the king and the king of the kingdom of God. He takes a particular line from Abraham to David, the first and greatest king of Israel, and says Jesus is the son of David, the true king. Now, if you were to, uh, to get me and, and Prince William next to each other, it would be fairly easy to tell who has the right to be the king. We know he's the second in line. Everyone knows that. Nobody's going to be looking at his passport or his birth certificate to prove the case. But if I wanted to make a case for being the king, I would have to demonstrate uh, that I have a lineage going back to some monarch of England. I don't, um, by the way as far as I'm aware. But you see, this is uh, Jesus uh, being presented as the rightful heir. Uh, For those of you who know Lord of the Rings, uh, bear with me. Uh, Aragorn is the Jesus character in Lord of the Rings. And very similar to to Jesus here, uh, the family line is broken. The line of kings has been broken. No one is expecting a king anymore in Gondor. Uh, There is a a steward in place. Uh, There is a promise, a prophecy of a king, but no one really believes it anymore. The people have got waiting fatigue. And how does Aragorn prove that he is is the king? He has the sword, the sword of Isildur, uh, by which he commands his army and wins the battle in the end. Sorry if that spoiled the film for you. (laughs) And so it is here. Jesus doesn't have a sword. He has a family tree that takes us back to David and says, at the very least, he has a right to be considered. But I think, actually, the the connection with Aragorn is even more uh, strong here. (coughs) If you know the story, you'll know uh, that Aragorn, from the beginning of the first book, is concerned with the blood that runs in his veins. He says over and again uh, that he's afraid to be the king because he knows the mistakes that his ancestors made and he knows that uh, the same mistakes are in him, at least potentially. The same blood runs in his veins. And if you look at Jesus' ancestry here, you have to say the same thing. There is a lot of bad blood running in the veins of the kings. Yes, David was a a great king, but verse 6 was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Not particularly veiled at pointing to the fact that he had essentially raped another man's wife and got her pregnant. He he was a great king. He was their greatest king, but he wasn't a faultless king by any means. And the list after him is a pretty sorry one. It took them 400 years to go into exile, and the people have been 600 years without a king on the throne. 
There's bad blood running in those veins. And so the thing that seems to stand out as, uh, as making Jesus illegitimate is actually the thing that makes him most legitimate. Just look at verse 16 with me. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. I think the point that Matthew is making is not simply admitting to the fact that Jesus comes, from, it comes in an unexpected way. He's making a point about parentage. The, the verb there, of whom was born, is the same as the verb, uh, the father of, throughout the passage. It's the same verb in a passive. That is, all the way through, Abraham the father of Isaac, all the way down, Jacob the father of Joseph. But Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus. He merely married Jesus' mother. And Mary obviously isn't the father. Mary is uh, the passive person here of whom was born, of whom was fathered. And who did the fathering? God. It's a common enough uh, form where you see a passive without somebody doing the deed. It is usually God in the New Testament. Uh, Simply put, uh, Jesus is, uh, by upbringing, in the family line of Joseph back to David. But in terms of his genetics, he is God. He doesn't have the same fallen nature that David did and that all of his descendants did. If you're looking for a king to sit on the throne eternally, if you're looking for a king who doesn't sin, then you want a king who is born differently, who is conceived differently. You're looking for a king who is the the true son of God. Far from Jesus' illegitimate birth disqualifying him from the throne, it is the one thing that qualifies him to sit on the throne. And I think the same point is made in a a more subtle way. Just look at verses 3 through 6. Did you notice, as Sine read, the uh, the four other women who are mentioned in the passage? Did you see that? Uh, Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah who dresses as a prostitute and persuades him to impregnate her, to bear uh, sons. Uh, You have... uh, Rahab next, the Canaanite prostitute who becomes one of God's people and becomes a grandparent to David, the great king. Or Ruth, the Moabitess, who becomes one of God's people and becomes a grandmother to David. And Uriah's wife, most likely a Hittite as well, who becomes one of God's people and the mother of Solomon. Four women of uh, indistinguished backgrounds for women who uh, may be considered to be uh, outsiders. I think all four are foreigners to the people of God. All four are, uh, in the first instance, indistinguished characters, and yet, in, in the view of God's people, heroines, and rightly so. Faithful women who loved God and sought his blessing, and sought to, uh, to do the right thing through whom God acted to bring about his purposes in the kingship of Israel. Do you see? But if you ask the question, is Mary unusual in that she was a virgin, 
No, I don't think so. I think what Matthew is doing is giving you four women who are unusual and yet heroines in the people of God and saying, is it really so unusual that God would use an unmarried woman? Is it so unusual that that God would use somebody who is unremarkable in other ways but faithful before the Lord? And the answer is no. It's not that unusual. It's, It's exactly the way God always acts. It's it's his M.O., his style. It's the way God does things. He chooses the unexpected people who walk with him to do remarkable things. Jesus is the true son of Abraham and he's the true son of David. It fits God's style. Jesus has the ancestry without the genetic faults. He's the perfect candidate to be the king. And more than that, Jesus is presented to us as the purpose of history. Did you notice that? Do you get the structure? It's almost so obvious you might have missed it. And so Matthew gives it to us in verse 17, doesn't he? There are 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now he might just simply be saying, Uh, Four major things I want you to know about Abraham, David, exile, Jesus. That might be all he's doing with the structure. But it seems to me that Matthew wants to emphasise four teens. He wants to have equal periods. Do you see that? And I take it he's doing that because he wants to say it is the right time for the Christ to come. It's been planned and now in the fullness of time, the Christ has come. Jesus is, uh, Jesus is the fit person for it, and it's the right time for it. How do we know this? Well, I, the first list from uh, 2 down to 6 takes 800 years. It seems very likely that there are people missed out of the list, and that's not a problem. So long as this is proper ancestry, it doesn't matter that there's one or two people missing at various points. Uh, so we get 14, even though there were probably more than 14 people. We know there were definitely more than 14 people in the second list. There are four kings missed out, three in a row. You skip three generations in one go. doesn't matter. This is the true line of the kings. And we have 14. <coughs> the last list, the parallel list in Luke, takes 22 people to cover the same period of time. It's very likely, therefore, that there are people missed out of this list as well. I say, what's he doing? It's not a complete list. It is a list of of people who are related to each other. That that end is achieved. Why three lots of 14? Several uh, reasons, I think. The first is that 14 has become uh, an important number for Jewish people at this time. Uh, He's hijacked it, if you like, and said it's all about Jesus. This mystical number for completeness. uh, seven doubled. Seven is a, a sort of a biblical number for completeness. Fourteen is, is a doubling of that, making it certain. He's saying the period between Abraham and David was complete. The period from David to the exile was complete. And now in the fullness of time, the period to the Christ is complete. All of history was leading to, was pointing to, was all about Jesus Christ. All of history was heading there. I think the point is made, in fact, in the very first two words of the the New Testament. That bit that says, a record of the genealogy 
Uh, literally is a translation of two words, uh, book of Genesis. That's what it says, book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. Book of Origins. Uh, it's a phrase that is picked up straight from Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 and 5 verse 1, where in the book of Genesis, uh, genealogies and, and history is being given to us. It's a phrase that had already become the title for the book of Genesis by this point. And so what's the claim that Matthew's making? Go back to Genesis, go back to the beginning, and from there onwards it's all about Jesus. Even before Abraham was, it was all about the coming of Christ. Do you see? Jesus is qualified to be the true son of David. Jesus is the centre point, at the high point of history. He's the one to which everything in history was heading. And not just at the history of God's people. Remember, Abraham was called out of the nations to be a blessing to the nations. If you've been in home group this year, you'll be aware of that. And so even as we focus in on sacred history, the history of God's people, we're focusing in on uh, the, high, the highlights of everyone's history. And Jesus is the one that it's all about. And do you notice the promises? Again, if you've been in home group, uh, you see the name Abraham, and immediately you're thinking, Abraham, uh, that's, that's Genesis 12, 1 to 3, that's promise of land and blessing and people and, and a relationship with God, and through, through his family, all the nations of the earth being blessed. I don't want to ruin things for us, but next term, what we're going to see in home group is that it focuses on the king, which is what Matthew does here. And if the king behaves as a true son of God, dwelling on the law day by day and leading the people in righteousness and justice, then God's people obey and the people receive the blessings promised to Abraham. And again, you look at this list of kings and you say, there are some marked highlights. Hezekiah, Josiah, David, the early part of Solomon. And lots of lowlights as well. And two big points jump out at you from this list. The first is, when the king sins, the people sin more. And the people end up in exile. You need a king who is sinless. And as we've seen, Jesus fulfills that requirement. And you need a king who doesn't die. Because even the very best of the kings, who managed to stop the rot for a while, even reverse things for a while, they die, and every one of them ends up with a son who is a total toe rag. The promise of God requires a king who is sinless and eternal. Jesus is the king. You see, the problem for God's people here is that their expectations are wrong. Their expectations are too small. They're expecting a king to ride into Jerusalem and, and re reclaim the throne and set up an eternal rule in a territorial state. But just flick over with me, would you, to the back end of the book, Matthew 28. Okay, the book ends for the book. are always a helpful place to go to see where, what the trajectory of the book is. Matthew 28, the last three verses. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, I'm with you to the very end of the age because Jesus is an eternal king. 
All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me because he's not a territorial king. He's not a king in Jerusalem, but a king in the new Jerusalem. And he rules over the whole earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And the blessing to Abraham going out to all nations. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Because the king's job is to lead the people in righteousness and obedience. And when Matthew ends, so he begins. This is your king. He's finally come. Rejoice and be glad in it. He's the only one who's qualified. The whole of history points this way. It's the right time. He's got exactly the right parentage that he needs to be the right sort of king. He is the long-expected king. See, for a Jew reading this, for a Jewish person reading this, they have to see, don't they? Jesus is the centre point of their own history. And every longing of the Jewish heart for a safe place to be in the world, for prosperity, for comfort, for ease, for joy, for family relationships that aren't interrupted by enemy nations invading their territory, all the longings of the Jewish heart that I think we still see today in the Middle East have been met and expanded on. Because this king comes not to establish a territory in the Middle East, but an eternal kingdom in heaven. And he is the centrepiece of all history, which means he is the centre point of your history and my history. We have to understand ourselves in relation to the one who is the centre point of all things. And we have to realise that Jesus has opened the way to satisfy all our longings. Now, we may not have the same promises, uh, grown up with the promises the way that the Jews had done. But we have waiting fatigue too, don't we? All that striving, all that aching for something more than we have, a longing to be accepted for who we are without having to perform, longing for a place where we can rest and not have to keep doing A place where we're accepted unconditionally, not on the basis of our performance. A place where all suffering has ended, all life is joy. A place where we can finally be home. See, we all strive for that, don't we? We long for it. But we know it won't happen here. And so in our weaker moments, we settle for something much less. We settle for something that gives us any part of that, any little glimmer of it, but it never satisfies. Because we too have been waiting. Ecclesiastes tells us, God has put eternity in the hearts of men so that you cannot be satisfied in this world. You long for the next. And your king has come. He has come. The perfect son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, has come to open the door so that the gospel can be preached to all nations. So that you can receive the gospel and you can preach the gospel. Isn't that what Christmas is for? Let's not settle for too little. 
but instead accept Christ and everything that he promises, which we'll see more of as we go through Matthew in the coming years. So then, if you're not a Christian here this evening, you're looking into Christian things, uh, praise the Lord that you're here. Please do take one of these Bibles away, if you haven't already, and please read Matthew this Christmas. Look at this king. Look at the sort of king that he is. Look at the sort of kingdom he rules over. And then come and tell me that you don't want to be part of that. And if you are a Christian, look at your king. Riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Not on a white charger, not to vanquish the Romans, but on a donkey to die at the hands of the Romans, to save the Romans as well as the Jews, king of the whole earth. I guess we have waiting fatigue, don't we? Waiting for the day when Jesus returns. That's what Advent is about. We're looking forwards. It took 1,800 years for Jesus to come the first time from the promise to Abraham. It shouldn't surprise us that it's taken 2,000 years and counting since he left. He is coming back. Our king is on the throne. He is the only one qualified to be that king. And praise God, he has sent him to redeem us. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, how we praise you that you have orchestrated history to point to the Lord Jesus. Thank you that even from his birth, from his conception, he was uniquely qualified to be your king. And how we praise you that he is the king, not only for the Jews, but also for the Moabites and the Hittites and the Canaanites, for the Romans and for the British and others. Our Father, how great is your plan, how great are your promises, how great is the blessing of being in Christ. Would you help us to see him as the fulfilment of all your plans and all our longings? For your name's sake. Amen. Thank you for that. We come to our last hymn now.